This is the My Dark Path Podcast. If I invited you to join me in the Marquis de Sade cellar, you might get a little nervous, but I promise you'd have nothing to worry about. The house where he used to live still stands on the Rue St. Paul in Paris and was there long before he was. The cellar dates back to the 16th century, and it gives you a little chill to touch these ancient stone supports. There's so much more to Paris than the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre, if you're willing to explore. And to stand in a place like this is to feel the city's history in a much more potent way. These days, the cellar is home to a pair of museums, the Museum of Curiosities and Magic and the Museum of Automatons. Descending into an ancient cellar is the perfect way to prepare yourself to see these exhibits. Many of the items on display date back centuries, showing you the evolution of magical illusions and the exotic artifacts that served as props in the telling of fantastic stories. When you look at some of these old curiosities, you see how fundamentally simple some of the mechanisms are and how remarkably easy it is to fool the human mind. Now, you can dismiss it as cheap trickery, a formula of engineering or sleight of hand, but the fact that these so-called magic tricks have lasted long enough to have their own museum tells me that there's much more going on here, and something here could offer us an important historical insight. Included in the artifacts here are a few items from Harry Houdini, who's a topic of an upcoming episode. And every tour concludes with a real magic show with a professional illusionist carrying on the tradition of tricking your eyes to provide delight and wonderment. The second museum is packed with automatons, mechanical figures that move and speak. Definitely visit our website for photos and links. But if you need a mental picture in the meantime, imagine what Walt Disney would have designed in the 18th century. Automatons are attempts to mimic human and animal figures in remarkable ways. Really, it's just the first glimpse at the future of robotics. But automatons weren't just curiosities that wealthy European families commissioned and gifted to each other. An automaton like some exhibited here defeated Napoleon at the height of his military and political power. But it didn't beat him on a battlefield. Instead, it defeated him on a chessboard. You heard me correctly, a machine defeated one of history's greatest tactical minds, and it didn't stop there. It traveled the globe, meeting the rulers of nations, inspiring frightening stories from some of the world's foremost authors, and may have kick-started a world-changing invention. How is this possible, and how is this not the most famous machine ever created? Well, in part because the story involves a lot of genius, but also a lot of the gimmickry that this museum was built to preserve and explore. Maybe the aura of showmanship stops us from giving this remarkable device the respect it deserves. And I'm planning on fixing that here. The creator of this machine was Hungarian and he called it Atorok. And with that, you've learned your first word in Magar, one of the world's most difficult languages, but we'll call it by its name in English, the Turk. And the story of the Turk begins with a question that sounds like something out of a fairy tale. How do you get the attention of an empress?
Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these topics, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. And since friends stay in touch, please reach out to me on Instagram at MyDarkPathPodcast. Sign up for our newsletter at MyDarkPath.com, or just send an email to explore at MyDarkPath. Share your thoughts about what you're hearing, suggest a topic for future episodes, or just say hi. Hearing from friends definitely makes me smile. So, thanks for listening, and let's get started with episode 12, the 18th century automaton who beat Napoleon. Part 1 The year is 1769. Europe is still smoldering from the remains of history's first actual world war, the Seven Years' War. Most of European politics centers around the Habsburg Empire. The empire's boundaries extend a little beyond the combined territory of Austria and Hungary, but the name Austria-Hungary didn't come into common use for almost a century. Most people simply called it the Empire. Now, it didn't have a Death Star, but it produced more than a few inventions and innovations that changed the world. An uncanny number of creative people were born in this empire. Joseph Hayden, Frank Litz, Mozart, and a visionary you may have heard of named Nikola Tesla. And there was another genius who hasn't become a household name, Wolfgang von Kempelen. This Wolfgang was an inventor and engineer, a man of many passions, interests, and skills. He fervently believed that the advance of science could help humanity and wanted to be one of the people pushing science forward. His biggest problem was that he needed a patron. Just like with Silicon Valley startups today, it's not enough to just have an idea. You need the financial backers to help. Von Kempelen needed to get the attention and the favor of someone with the means to help him do his work. And when you're living in the empire in 1769, no one had more power and more resources than the empress herself, Maria Theresa. Empress Maria Theresa is a remarkable woman in the history of Europe. Her father, Emperor Charles VI, was so determined to ensure that she would inherit his empire that he issued an edict using his authority as Holy Roman Emperor. Even though this wasn't enough, and a war broke out over the succession which splintered the empire. But the empress did a great deal in her lifetime to rebuild, unify, and modernize the territory she did control. And she even managed to maintain authority after marrying and having a male heir. Not at all common at this time. Unfortunately, she also showed fierce religious intolerance and persecuted the Jewish people who lived within the empire. But to Wolfgang von Kempelen, what mattered was that she was the most powerful monarch in Europe, had immense wealth and influence, and that she was a brilliant tactician and savvy politician, with a real fascination and curiosity for science. She had a desire to keep up with the modern world. It made her the greatest patron he could possibly want. But there were countless others with the same idea. So as von Kempelen set out for the Empress's summer residence, the grandiose Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna, he knew his greatest challenge would be just to get her attention. Someone else is on their way to the palace at the same time, and this coincidence is what leads to the birth of the Turk. This other visitor is a Frenchman, Francois Pelletier. 
He's an illusionist, a traveling magician, and apparently a very successful one. We don't know many details about his act, but apparently he did some amazing things using magnets, and amazing enough to secure an invite to perform for the Empress and her court on more than one occasion. So two men go to the palace, one is a great scientist and one a great showman who uses a little science in his act. And who is it that wins the attention of the Empress? It's Francois Pelletier, the illusionist. The Empress is so fascinated by the performance that Wolfgang von Kempelen doesn't even get a chance to discuss the inventions that he wants to pursue. After all, their only ideas sketched on a piece of paper, dry stuff and not particularly inspiring. Von Kempelen explodes with frustration and jealousy. He declares in front of Pelletier and the Empress herself that within one year, he will return with a performance that will outdo any of Pelletier's simple tricks. And that's exactly what he did. And what he created was the Turk. The Turk itself hasn't survived. Otherwise, it would probably be the star attraction at that museum in Paris. There are a lot of drawings, etchings, sketches, and even paintings of it. And they vary in a lot of details. But this is the best collective description that we can give you. Picture a life-sized human head and torso, the figure of a man with a black beard and green eyes. He's dressed in what audiences at the time would consider stereotypical Ottoman clothing, fancy robes and a turban. This head and torso are in a casual position, leaning on top of a large white cushion. His left arm holds a long Ottoman-style pipe. His right arm rests atop a finely crafted wooden cabinet. The cabinet is maybe three and a half feet long, two feet wide, and two and a half feet high. It has two large doors, one on each side of the cabinet, and a single drawer. On top of the cabinet, there's a simple but well-made chessboard placed within arm's reach of the Turk. When you pull open the drawer, you see it's lined with red velvet and it contains a full set of ivory chess pieces, one set in red and one set in white. It's a luxurious set worth far more than the average person could afford. There's one last odd thing that accompanies the Turk and separate from the rest. It's a small box shaped like a coffin, but small enough to be carried in one arm. And I'll tell you more about this box later. Six months after Wolfgang von Kempelen made his promise to the Empress, he packs up the newly finished Turk, makes a few arrangements and heads back to the palace. It's now 1770, six years before the United States would declare independence from the British Empire. Von Kempelen unveils his odd-looking machine, and there are gasps. What could it be, and what could it do? He invites a volunteer from the audience to come and play a game of chess. The first person to take up that challenge is an Austrian courtier, Count Ludwig von Korbenzi. Von Kemplen thanks the Count and calls for a polite round of applause for the brave challenger. Then he opens up one of the sliding doors on the side of the cabinet and invites the Count to inspect the exposed left side of the machine. The Count sees a mass of gears and weights similar to one of those mechanical clocks that had become so popular. Then Von Kempelen opens the other side, demonstrating that there is nothing else in between. No mirrors no tricks. He repeats the action by sliding the doors shut and then sliding them open in the opposite direction. 
the count inspects the right side of the machine, the same internals, and the same mechanisms. Wolfgang then offers the count a powerful set of magnets. Will the count be kind enough to run them over the surfaces of the machine to ensure that no magnetic trickery is involved? The count eagerly agrees, and the inspection reveals nothing. Now, Wolfgang von Kempelen opens the drawer with a flourish and produces the chess pieces. The Count will play red, the Turk will play white. The Turk, as the player offering the challenge, will be given the courtesy of the first move. The Count chuckles but agrees that this is proper decorum for a chess game. The rules are standard. Von Kempelen promises the Count that the Turk will nod twice if it threatens the Count's Queen. It will nod three times if it places an opponent's king in check. But, von Kempelen warns, the Turk does not look kindly on illegal moves. And with that, the Turk moves. The audience is astonished as this artificial figure of a bearded man sits down its pipe, selects a piece, and moves it. The Count answers with a move of his own, and the match is underway. Members of the audience swear that they can see the Turk smiling or frowning throughout the match. Sometimes it seems to pause in thought. When the Count does make an illegal move, the Turk shakes its head and moves the piece back to its proper place before taking its own move. It's a fast, intense match. The Count, it just so happens, is an exceptional chess player. But so it seems is the Turk. All the while, Wolfgang von Kempelen paces around the perimeter of the room, carrying that odd coffin-shaped box that I mentioned. Sometimes he offers a witty comment on the match, and several times he opens the lid of the little box, looks inside, and either nods in satisfaction or makes a little tut-tutting noise. And in just 30 minutes, the match is over. Count Corbenzi concedes defeat and applauds von Kempelen and his miraculous invention. The audience roars in appreciation, and the Empress Maria Theresa is impressed. With her blessing, several more matches are played with new challengers from the court. Some lose and some win, but the Turk plays every match confidently and aggressively. For his final trick, von Kempelen instructs the Turk to perform one of the classic puzzles of the chessboard, the Knight's Tour. If you have access to a chessboard, give this a try. You have to move a single knight around the board so that it touches each square once and only once before arriving back at its original position. If you manage to work it out, please send me an email. I'd love to see it. The Turk performs the knight's tour flawlessly and the audience is astounded and von Kempelen has succeeded in his goal and then some. The Empress loves it and he not only gets her attention but the patronage he badly wanted. The Habsburgs will now fund von Kempelen's work. He's achieved everything he set out to do but he soon finds out that he may have been too successful. Part 2 While Wolfgang von Kempelen guessed right that a little showmanship would help him rise above the competition, he didn't anticipate just how popular his invention would be. The Turk becomes the talk of the court, which means it became the talk of the empire. Everyone wanted to see it in action. To von Kempelen, this is a distraction. He wants to be an engineer, not a toy maker and showman. 
He finds excuses not to put on performances. It's broken today, he'll say, or I'm working on a new mechanism, or I'm awaiting new parts. For the next 10 years, while we know that he did consent to private showings, he only offers one public performance, an exhibition game against the Scotsman, Sir Robert Murray Keith. And after that match, Von Kemplen completely disassembles the machine. He tells a friend the Turk is a mere bagatelle or a trifle. He wanted to spend more time on his passions like the development of steam engines and his dream of mechanically replicating human speech. Unfortunately, the Empress Maria Theresa passes away and her successor, Emperor Joseph II, is willing to continue their patronage, but on a much shorter leash. In 1781, the Emperor orders von Kemplen to reassemble the Turk for a state visit by the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. The exhibition is enormously successful, which is exactly the opposite of what Wolfgang von Kempelen wants. Word spreads all over again. The Emperor suggests that a tour of Europe would benefit both von Kempelen and the Empire. And when the Emperor who holds your purse strings makes a suggestion, not many people are going to refuse. The tour brings fame and fortune to Wolfgang von Kempelen. He starts in France with a stop at Versailles before moving on to Paris. The Turk plays against Europe's leading chess master, François-André Danikin Philidor. Philidor is victorious, but later describes the match to his son as, quote, the most exhausting game of my life, end quote. And the Turks' last game in Paris is played against the U.S. ambassador to France, a man known for his scientific curiosity, Benjamin Franklin. The Turk moves on to London, where it stays for an entire year. Next is Leipzig, then Dresden, then Amsterdam, where von Kempelen receives an invitation to the court of none other than Frederick the Great of Prussia. Now, there's a rumor that survives to this day that Frederick offered von Kempelen an unimaginable sum of money for a private explanation of how the device worked. We have no way of confirming this, but imagine being a scientist who once struggled to find a benefactor, having the ruler of a rival nation throwing money at you, all because of a game. The Turk could probably have carried on this tour for many more years, but von Kempelen, who was only human, is exhausted. He tries to find a buyer for the machine, but can't. So he leaves it in the care of the palace and spends his final years away from the crowds focused on his real passions. His achievements are remarkable, everything from a typewriter for a blind person to the fountains at Schoenbrunn to his long dreamed of speaking machine which operates using air bellows. He truly counts as a genius of the 18th century and enlightened intellect who succeeded in many fields. But when he died in 1804 at age 70, and still to this day, he is most remembered for the machine that made his fortune. In 1805, von Kemplen's son makes another attempt to sell the Turk. And this time, he finds a buyer, a famous Bavarian musician named Johann Nepomuk Meisel. Meisel, unlike von Kemplen, is a natural performer who loves a crowd, and he intends to make the Turk his main gig. But first, he needs to figure out how it works. So now, dear listeners, it's time to take you inside the cabinet to reveal the Turk's secrets. And, as you've probably guessed, there's much more going on than meets the eye. First, let's clean up our terminology. 
In our modern vocabulary, a robot is a thinking machine that can respond to a situation using its programming, while an automaton cannot think. It's more akin to a mechanical puppet, and variations on such machines have existed for thousands of years. You've encountered automata all of your life, everything from wind-up toys to the mechanical puppets at an amusement park. We've definitely wrestled with the title as the word automaton isn't common in today's technology vocabulary. If you went to the theater in ancient Greece, you might see automata at work. There's a saying for it, Deus ex machina, a god from the machine. It meant that if you didn't know how to end the play, you could always depend on a spectacular special effect or event to close things out with a bang. It sounds a lot like some movies we see today. The ancient Chinese used automatons too. The tomb of the Qing Emperor, the one with those famous terracotta soldiers, is rumored to contain a map of all of China with mechanically moving parts and flowing rivers of mercury. There's a story from the Tudor days about a royal feast where butter and sugar were served by little wind-up carriages that traveled the length of the table. Similar expensive toys were delighting the French royals, all the while the peasants were sharpening the guillotine. In von Kempelen's time, one of the most famous designers of automata was a Frenchman, Jacques de Vaucassonne. He had an automaton that could play the tambourine, another that played flute, and in 1739, he unveiled Le Canard de Retour, the digesting duck. And yes, I said digesting duck. This was a mechanical duck built to scale in gold-plated copper. It could quack, it could muddle water with its bill, but what really wowed the crowds was it could drink water and eat food, and then it would excrete. The show-stopping invention that Jacques de Vacassan was an artificial duck who could eat and poop. People loved it. Vaucasson was quick to admit that it wasn't true digestion. What came out of the duck's back end wasn't what it had eaten, but he genuinely hoped that someday he or his successor might develop an automaton capable of fully digesting a meal. Now this sounds very silly to the modern ear, but if you think about what he would have learned about the body's digestive processes by pursuing this goal, this would have been incredibly impressive stuff to pull off. Vaucasson's designs made an impression on Wolfgang von Kemplen. He shared the goal of building something that would have had practical use, something that would advance knowledge while achieving a show-stopping goal. So I'll confirm what you've probably been suspecting this whole time. The Turk was not a thinking robot, it was an automaton. It couldn't play chess itself, but it could perform the moves of a game with human guidance. But where was that guidance coming from? That's what Mizell needed to figure out if he was going to make good on his investment. And it turns out he was not only smart enough to do it, he was able to make a few improvements along the way. But before we get to that, let's talk about what he learns when he takes the Turk apart. It takes two people for the Turk to play a game of chess. There's the host, the showman who works the audience, and then there's the operator, the puppeteer who runs the Turk from within. And what about that moment when von Kemplen opened up the cabinet and let the audience members inspect the Turk's inner workings? Well, any magician will tell you how easily such devices can conceal a person. The puppeteer sat inside the cabinet on a sliding cushion. When the host put on a show of opening one side of the cabinet, 
the operator would bend his knees, sliding back, and a false wall would drop into place, hiding them. Inside the Turk, the operator had several tools at his disposal. Despite the host's invitation to the opponent to run magnets over the cabinet in order to prove there was no magnetic trickery, there was actually a lot of magnetic trickery. He just hid it very well. The red chess pieces which the human player would use were subtly magnetized, and when you placed them on the board, they would attach to a series of magnetized strings underneath. When the human player moved a red piece, the string would move so the operator could see their positions while hidden inside the cabinet. They controlled the white pieces while using an ingenious mechanical pegboard. When they pulled out a peg and placed it in a new slot, an incredibly sophisticated mechanical device called a pantograph translated that chess move into the mechanical operations of the Turk's left hand and arm. If you remember that puzzle called the Knight's Tour, that's how they solved it as well. There was a separate pegboard with a solution mapped onto it, so any operator could just follow the instructions. I can't stop marveling at the ideas von Kempelen came up with to make this device work. He used mirrors to channel light into the cabinet so the operator could see. The operator could also move the Turk's head, change its facial expressions, and perform other tricks with the left arm. The audience wasn't imagining when they saw it smile or frown. It was all a part of the show. And as a little extra touch that I especially admire, von Kempelen even provided a little tool that replicated the sound of moving clockworks. The operator could trigger it at any time, just to add to the illusion that this was a completely mechanical invention. But what about that coffin-shaped box that he carried around during the exhibition, the one he would peer into now and again? It turns out it was just a canard, a prop to misdirect the audience, throw them off the scent of how the Turk really worked. And it was effective. During an exhibition in an opera house, an older noblewoman insisted upon being seated as far from the Turk as possible. Apparently, she believed the little coffin contained some kind of malevolent spirit. For someone who wanted to spend his life doing serious things, Wolfgang von Kemplen turned out to be one heck of a showman. Perhaps to him, the problem of how to engineer a human response wasn't that difficult once he watched how that French magician worked. Sadly, that little coffin-shaped box passes from history with the death of Wolfgang von Kemplen, and if Mizell ever received it, he never used it. Mizell cracked all these secrets and even made some improvements. Instead of mirrors, which could be unreliable and required very precise positioning, he added a ventilation tube so the operator could work by candlelight. The candle smoke escaped out of the Turk's turban. If they were outdoors, the smoke was too subtle to see. And if they were indoors, candles or torches around them in the room masked the smoke easily enough. He also added a letter board so that the Turk could answer simple questions from the audience, which the operator did in six different languages. And he included a touch that I think Wolfgang von Kemplen would have especially appreciated, as it paid tribute to his other scientific ambitions. Mizell installed a voice box that gave the Turk the power of speech. Well, at least one word. When the operator triggered the voice box, the Turk would declare, Aishek, the French way of saying check. So Mizell had his machine reassembled and improved, 
Turk 2.0, as we'd call it today. And now he needed just one thing, a chess player willing to sit in a cramped little box and help him put on a show. Part 3 There were many secrets associated with the Turk, some of which we will never uncover. And one of the things we'll never know are the names of all of the chess players who collaborated with both von Kemplin or Meisel. They were not paid just for their skill, but for their discretion. We know that a European chess master named William Schlumberger worked for both of the original owners of the Turk. But that's the only name we can associate with von Kemplin's many years on tour. We know that during Meisel's European tour, he used a brilliant French woman whose name is unfortunately lost to history. Not only did she rarely lose, even against the most skilled opponents, she also spoke several languages, which allowed Meisel and herself to show off the Turk's new ability to take questions. We know that she and Meisel made a great deal of money together, and it must have been a far more interesting life than the 19th century offered to most women or men. But we also know that when there was an opportunity to tour America, she stayed behind. We don't know what it was, but there was something in her life that she just didn't want to leave, and she'd reached the limit of the travel she was willing to do. Mizell, however, had a great appetite for touring, and this is when the Turk's fame really goes worldwide. One of his first triumphs, that fateful encounter I mentioned at the beginning, when the machine played against the conqueror Napoleon Bonaparte himself. It's 1809, and Napoleon has risen to own the titles of both the Emperor of France and the King of Italy. He's just forced the empire to sign a peace treaty after a long and vicious war, and is now touring the Habsburg territories. Mizell seized on the opportunity to arrange for the match to take place where the world first met the Turk, at Schobrunn Palace in Vienna. As with anything related to Napoleon, the details over the years have been obscured by propaganda, assumptions, and misreporting, but we do have a general idea of what occurs. The Turk salutes Napoleon. Then both players are separated by a velvet rope, each seated at their own table and board. Mizell walks between the two boards as a proctor, moving the pieces on each board. Napoleon's opening strategy, he breaks the rules deliberately. He moves a piece despite having agreed that the Turk would move first. Mizell allows the match to continue. Then, Napoleon moves a piece in an illegal way. The Turk responds as it always does. It picks up the illegally moved piece, puts it back on the original space, and then makes its own move. Undeterred, the Emperor makes a second illegal move with a different piece. The Turk moves the piece back again and continues. Then Napoleon cheats a third time, and this time the Turk raises its head, apparently angry, and sweeps all the pieces off the board using the stem of its pipe. The audience is hushed into silence. And what does Napoleon do? He laughs. He apologizes theatrically to the Turk and offers to restart the match. I have to imagine that, as he did in war, Napoleon wanted to test his opponent before the battle got properly underway. In the second match, he plays fair, and in just 19 moves, the Turk defeats him. In front of an amazed audience, Napoleon tips over his king and salutes the Turk. It's perhaps the most graceful response 
he ever had to being beaten. There are even rumors that he came back later to test the automaton again in private. So what do you do when you have an invention that defeated one of the world's most powerful people? You keep selling tickets for as long as you can. And in this case, it lasted decades. From 1809 to 1836, the Turk crossed oceans and continents. Mizell found clever ways to keep giving opponents hope. Inspired by Napoleon, he started letting them make the first move. Sometimes he even handicapped the Turk by taking a pawn off the board before the start of the game. There are skeptics in every crowd, accusations of fraud, anonymous threats to expose the show's secrets, but no one ever cracks the truth of how the machine works, and Mizell and his series of operators make a very comfortable living. And along the way, they encounter a remarkable roster of historical figures. We already mentioned Benjamin Franklin, but on the American tour, the Turk gives a performance in Richmond, Virginia, that's witnessed by the legendary writer Edgar Allan Poe. He writes a long essay called Mizell's Chess Player, which explores the influence of automata on modern civilization and discusses the performance, as well as proposing a theory about the Turk's inner mechanisms. He even includes diagrams. Some of his guesses have become mixed up with what we actually do know about the Turk. And we believe it was Poe who first proposed the theory that there was a human operator inside with dwarfism. Now, we can't prove a negative, so while it's possible that one of the many secret chess players operating the Turk was a little person, we do know the cabinet was designed to accommodate someone of average size. While neither Jules Verne nor H.G. Wells ever witnessed the Turk firsthand, both wrote stories inspired by second-hand accounts. The famous satirist and horror writer Ambrose Beers wrote one of his most chilling short stories, Moxon's Master, after learning about the Turk. In his story, a man creates a chess-playing device, and when the machine believes that its creator has cheated in a match, it murders him. This theme of an intelligent machine turning the tables on its creator has been echoing through science fiction ever since. Just think of Metropolis, The Matrix, The Terminator, and Battlestar Galactica. And here's the encounter which may be the most remarkable of all. A young man named Cyrus McCormick watches a performance by the Turk. Now, he guesses wrong about how the automaton works, but his wrong guess actually changes the course of humanity. He believes the Turk is operated by punch cards, an idea that was beginning to show up in other technologies like mechanical looms. Some scientists at the time are even examining whether these punch cards could be used to store and retrieve information quickly. This isn't McCormick's area of expertise. His family is in the business of building reapers that harvest grain. But when the idea enters his head that a machine could do something as complicated as play a game of chess, he makes the leap to the idea that a mechanical reaper could increase the efficiency of any farm. The invention he and his collaborators developed helped drive the Industrial Revolution, and that's after he guessed wrong about what made the Turk work. And as you've probably guessed, there were copycats. Even if they didn't know exactly how the Turk operated, competitors engineered their way into something similar. There was the Egyptian, the Persian, but my favorite might be Mephisto, the chess-playing devil. He had a reputation for making rude gestures at his opponents, but would occasionally throw a match to a female player. A fun side story is this. 
Mephisto was disassembled in the 1890s and went into storage somewhere in France. His current whereabouts are unknown, but it's fun to imagine an unsuspecting person opening an old crate in their Parisian attic and finding a chess-playing devil inside. It sounds like the start of a future novel. And eventually, technology advanced far enough that the lie could be made true. Every generation of computing has involved chess-playing machines, and finally in 1997, the human race crossed a line where there was no going back. IBM supercomputer Deep Blue defeated world chess champion Garry Kasparov in a six-game match. And as for the Turk, all things must come to an end. In 1838, on Mizell's second tour of the Americas, his longtime operator and friend, William Schlumberger, died of yellow fever. Mizell fell into deep depression, became ill himself, and died at sea. After that, the Turk passed through a series of caretakers, winding up in a museum owned by a collector named Charles Wilson Peel. And on July 5th, 1859, a fire erupting in a nearby theater spread to the museum, and the Turk, the machine that dazzled an empress, defeated a military conqueror, and inspired great geniuses of its time, was destroyed forever. Part 4 I wonder... If Wolfgang von Kemplen could have seen the far-reaching impact his invention has had, would he have been so quick to dismiss it as a mere trifle? Clearly, the demands of touring and performing were incompatible with his personality. But I wonder if he would be so upset now by the fact that it stands as his most famous and enduring work. It inspired so many imaginations, got so many creative thinkers trying to guess at its secrets to create their own versions. People bettered themselves because of the high bar of ingenuity that he set. We've seen it time and time again throughout history that setting an extraordinary goal can bring out the best in extraordinary people. Perhaps like when John F. Kennedy declared that we were going to the moon before we even knew how to do it. That, perhaps, is the secret to all great enduring success. For all the razzle-dazzle, all the trickery, and all of the applause that made it seem like a sideshow to the real science, it was entertainment that put science in front of the masses in a way that got them interested. And that sort of power shouldn't be easily dismissed, especially in a modern age where we endeavor to educate modern children in math and science. A robot duck with a working digestive system may be a way to educate in addition to another textbook. I think you might be able to learn more about humanity and what drives us in Paris's Museum of Automatons than you could learn at the Eiffel Tower. But you have to be willing to walk a dark path to get there, or in this case, down a dark stairway and wonder who else may have walked unwittingly into the Marquis de Sade's lair. There's one last legend about the Turk that I think sums up its hold on our imagination. The last owner of the automaton before it wound up in that museum was John Kearsley Mitchell. He had spent years restoring the machine, even founding a chess club to help raise funds that he needed. He was near the museum when the fire broke out and raced there in hopes of saving the miraculous Turk. He was too late, but for the rest of his life, he swore that he heard the Turk Quote, through the struggling flames, the last words of our departed friend, 
the sternly whispered, oft-repeated syllables of Eshek, Eshek, end quote. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. Please take a moment and give us a rating and review. This simple act helps us reach a much broader audience. I want to welcome Evadine Hendricks to the team as our producer and give thanks to our audio engineer, Dom Purdy. This story was prepared for us by our lead researcher, Alex Bagasy. Our senior story editor is Nicholas Thurkettle. Big thank yous to them and the entire My Dark Path team. And dear listener, thank you. You have more choices than ever about where to spend your time, and I'm grateful that you've chosen to spend some of that time here with me, walking the dark paths of the world together. And until next time, good night. Museum of Charles Wilson Peel. Where was the Museum of Charles Wilson Peel?